Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, the last of the eight attitudes that ought to be in us. Today we're looking at the fourth element of true godliness. Fourth element of true godliness. If you have been following along in these Beatitudes, you find as you move through the four elements of true saving faith into the four elements of true godliness, you find that it's going to eventually lead you to persecution. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we've been doing, we'll look at a series of questions and and an attempt to answer those questions as we go through these precious verses here. And I suppose where we need to start is this. Is Jesus' teaching on persecution outdated? You say, we're not living in the first century. You know, we're not, uh, we don't have Caesars ruling over us killing Christians, do we? Is, is Jesus' teaching on persecution outdated? Outdated? Is it relevant in our days? Well, my friends, these verses are very relevant, as all of Scripture always is, and not all, uh, it's not outdated at all, in fact. And really to understand why, we really need to help uh, get a global perspective, okay? Because what's going on here in New Zealand is not what's obviously happening around the world. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, even as far back as 1980, and trust me, things haven't got any better. If, if anything, they've gotten worse. Anyway, the World Christian Encyclopedia says this, quote, 2.2 billion people lived in 79 countries under significant restrictions on their religious freedom. 60% of all Christians live in these countries and 224 million, which at that time was 16% of all Christians, live in countries where there is severe state interference, harassment, and persecution. So you look at that and you say, what do you do with that? Well, the least we can say is that from a global standpoint, the words of Jesus are very relevant. And indeed, they're very precious, especially for the millions of our brothers and sisters who are under constant threat and pressure from governments and from uh, other religious groups, if you will, and organizations that torture them, sometimes throw them in prison, sometimes kill them, and at the very least have them under constant surveillance. So as we look at Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, it's important for us to understand our second question of who are the persecuted? Who are the persecuted? Well, it's pretty obvious if you've been going through these Beatitudes, they are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who are evidencing the true elements of saving faith. They've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They are also the ones who live out the previous seven Beatitudes. Okay, It it comes as a package, by the way. 
The second Timothy 3.12 says, All who live godly will suffer persecution. So we're talking about people who are Christians, people who, as a result of being a Christian, live like Christ. They are Christ-like. As a result, we call them godly. Let me give you an example here. As you know, I love church history. Church history is one of the greatest things you can read. I encourage you to read many biographies of Christians. And if you've finished all the ones in the church library, I've got many more at home for you, okay? I would love for you to read those. One of the great men of the faith was Savonarola. There's a, someone's drawing of Savonarola preaching. He was one of those great reformers. If you've never heard of him, he, you, you need to learn about him. He was a powerful preacher who condemned personal sin and church corruption. As you know, the Catholic system was the world-dominating system at that time. Essentially ruled the world. This Italian preacher paved the way for the Protestant Reformation, which began a few years after his death. One biographer wrote, quote, here's what he said, His preaching was a voice of thunder, and his denunciation of sin was so terrible that the people who listened to him went about the streets half-dazed, bewildered, and speechless. There's a statue of him on the slide here. Anyway, this biographer said that his congregations were so often in tears that the whole building resounded with their sobs and their weeping, end quote. The next slide is a picture of someone's artwork of him when he was burnt at the stake. Why did they burn him at the stake? Well, the people didn't like the truth. And so for his preaching, simply preaching the Bible to them, Savonarola was convicted of heresy. He was hanged and his body was burned in the town square. That's an example of what will happen if you live godly. So the persecuted are those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as a result of being a Christian, you should be living a Christ-like life. And when you do that, Jesus says, you'll be persecuted. Our third question for today is this, why are Christians persecuted? Why are Christians persecuted? Well, look at verse 10 in your Bible. Matthew 5.10 says, Christians are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, let me put it to you this way, you're going to be persecuted for living right. You see the word right in righteousness? That, that helps me to understand kind of what it's talking about. But another way to define righteousness, which is mentioned in verse 10, is to look at verse 11, which is kind of a parallel to verse 10. In verse 10, the persecution is on account of righteousness, but if you look at verse 11, it's on the account of Jesus or Christ. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who's speaking there? Well, if you have a red-letter edition Bible, you see it's in red letters, right? That means Jesus is speaking. So it's on the account of Christ. So we could put it this way. If you put verse 10 and 11 together, you say, why are Christians persecuted? It's essentially for the same reason. It's on the account of righteousness, 
and on Christ's sake. It's the same thing. To live right means to live like Christ. One commentator put it this way, Matthew Henry. I'm sure you've heard of him, I hope. He's a very good commentator. Matthew Henry said this, All this is for righteousness' sake, or for my sake, according to verse 11. If for righteousness' sake, then for Christ's sake. For he is interested in the work of righteousness. Enemies to righteousness are enemies to Christ. This precludes those from the blessedness who suffer justly and are evil spoken of truly for their real crimes. Let such be ashamed and confounded. It is part of their punishment. It is not for suffering, but the cause that makes the martyr. Those suffer for righteousness' sake, who suffer because they will not sin against their consciences, and who suffer for doing that which is good. Whatever pretense persecutors have, it is the power of godliness that they have an enemy, an enmity to. It is really Christ and His righteousness that are maligned, hated, and persecuted. End quote. So do you realize, my friend, when that workmate comes to you and he starts slandering you and gossiping about you and he's saying nasty things about you and calling you a hypocrite and that workmate is, is you know, going to your boss and he's saying untrue things about you, he's trying to get you in trouble, when that persecution comes to you, because you've been doing what is right, don't look at that poor fellow and say, what an idiot. You need to look at the poor fellow and say, that fellow needs Christ, and, and Satan's using him to attack me for Christ's sake. Another question we need to look at today is, why, or did Christ talk about specific types of affliction? We're talking about persecution and affliction here. Did Christ talk about these things? And yes, the answer is yes. Christ spoke, in fact, of at least three specific types of affliction that can be endured for His sake. Number one, first of all, Christians can expect physical persecution. This one's pretty obvious. The other ones may not be so obvious. You see the word persecuted there in our, in our text? The word persecuted has the basic meaning of chasing, driving away, or pursuing. And from that meaning developed the connotations of physical persecution, harassment, abuse, and other unjust treatment. That's what we're talking about here when Jesus uses this word persecuted. It's, it's, he's talking about physical persecution. The kind of thing, you know, for example, a Savonarola being burnt at the stake. Or Christians being thrown in prison. That's what we're talking about here. But Jesus talked about other types of affliction. Number two, Christians can expect verbal persecution. And in this case, it comes in the form of insults. Our text uses the word revile. Jesus used the word revile. What's that talking about? The word revile carries the idea of seriously insulting someone. To throw abusive words in the face of an opponent. Or to mock viciously. You ever received that? 
that's insults. That's the word that Jesus is using here for revile. An example of that kind of treatment is when Jesus Christ was standing before the Sanhedrin after he was arrested. The Bible says in Matthew 26, Then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? That's the kind of reviling that Jesus understood. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So Christians can also expect verbal persecution in the form of insults. And the number three, Christians can expect verbal persecution in the form of slander. Now some of you might think that's the same thing. It's not, all right? Slander are evil words. They're uh, primarily abusive words that are said when we're not actually present. When we're not in the room and somebody's you know, figuratively speaking, stabbing you in the back, right? You know what I mean by being stabbed in the back? Not literally, but figuratively. When you're not actually there and somebody else, your workmate or your neighbor or your, your even, even a family member's saying really nasty, untrue things about you. So I, I, I personally think slander behind our backs is harder to take and, and partly I think it's harder to take because it's harder to defend, isn't it? You can't defend yourself when somebody out there in the world somewhere is saying nasty things about you. I mean, I, you're not there, so you can't defend yourself. It's not a direct accusation. And as a result, it has the opportunity to actually spread into, into, into people's minds and hearts and take root and, and sometimes people actually believe what that person's saying, even though it's probably not true. And so you don't have a chance to correct that slander. It's a horrible thing, but sadly it happens too often. So those are various forms of affliction that the Bible talks about that you and I can endure. And so... As we progress through this passage, then, you're probably wondering, well, then, why is righteousness persecuted? Because, I mean, as we've been going through these Beatitudes, these are beautiful things, awesome things. Why is righteousness persecuted? If, if living right means these sort of things, like being merciful and being pure and peaceable, why would anybody persecute that? You've you got to ask the question, or, or you've got to make the statement, uh, you know, that doesn't seem very offensive, does it? You've got to love those kind of people, don't you? I mean, being merciful, being pure in heart, being peaceable, being a peacemaker, aren't those good things? Why would anybody persecute that? Well, the reality is that life, if, if let me put it this way, if your life is devoted to being godly, to living like Christ, you will be persecuted. Why? Because people love their sin. That's the answer, my friend. People love their sin. Let me give you some examples of this. You want to know where the rubber meets the road? Here's where it meets the road, okay? For example, if, if you're one of these people who cherish purity, purity of your mind, purity of your life, guess what? Your life is going to be an attack on free sex. 
If you don't drink beer or wine, your life is going to be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue, pursue self-control, your life will, ex, will accuse excess eating. If you live simply, you will show the folly of materialism. If you walk humbly with your God, you're going you're to expose the evil of pride. If you are a punctual person and you're, you're thorough in your dealings with others, you're going to lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you are spiritually minded, you're going to expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. And trust me, if you haven't experienced it already, you're going to be persecuted for those sort of attitudes. Just look at Tim Tebow. He's a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. (laughs) He's not ashamed to speak up for Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed to speak out against free sex. He's not ashamed to speak out the, about the evils of abortion, and because of that, he's just one example of a Christian who's being persecuted for it. So what are the responses to a righteous life, then? What are the responses to a righteous life? If you live a, a right life before this world, what kind of a response are you going to get? Well, there's at least two possible responses that people can have. And they're both described for us by Jesus in John chapter 3. Here's what Jesus said. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. You say, I'm not seeing the two responses there. (laughs) What are the two options? Well, number one... The first option is persecution. And the second option is conversion. Now I'm referring to a spiritual conversion here. Of course, in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. We can see these two options again in Matthew 5.10. Jesus said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's your two options. If you live a godly, Christ-like life, you're either going to be persecuted or that person's going to be converted. Well, then you ask, well, what about all the unbelievers in my life who are neither converted nor persecuting? I mean, uh, you know, th- this, this person, you know, I've, I'm, I'm living right before them. I think I'm living right before them. In fact, I've even tried to give them the gospel or I've handed them a tract. And uh, I don't seem to be experiencing any of those responses. What's going on there? Well, there's at least two possible explanations, okay? Number one, Jesus said that possibly your light is hidden. Because if you go on to read... In the passage, if you look at verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's, that's one possible reason why maybe your light is 
is hidden under a basket, so to speak. Your light is not shining forth to the people around you. If your life is not godly, if your unsaved workmate or your unsaved family member or neighbor looks at you and they see you as just like them, they're not going to persecute you. Because your light's not shining, it's hidden. You're keeping the gospel concealed by not letting your distinctive values show to the people around you. Now, my friend, it should be pretty obvious what Jesus thinks about that. Jesus says that's wrong. He wants you to be what you really are. He said, in fact, he says, you are the light. Now let it shine forth. Don't hide it. Well, the second explanation is you're letting your distinctive values show, and those people are actually moving toward a, a certain response. They're moving. Either they're moving toward persecution or they're moving toward conversion, but they're moving. Now, neither of these must happen immediately, okay? Please understand that. Uh, there's all kinds of factors that can actually hinder persecution in your life. Uh, for example, we even see it in the Gospels when the Pharisees uh, wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to persecute Jesus. They, didn't, they weren't able to get Jesus right away. It, it took them some time to actually get him and, and finally crucify him. The persecution was coming. They were moving toward the persecution, but it didn't happen immediately. And that's the way it can happen in our lives, too. Neither persecution nor conversion is always going to happen immediately. And in fact, many people are actually torn inside themselves. You'll see people who are partly being torn by the claims of Christianity in the Bible. But then you'll actually see others who are being torn by what they see in your life and they don't like what they see in your life. So they might actually respect you in some ways, but they actually hate your life because it's a rebuke on their life. So as we see this, that should cause us to examine ourselves then, right? It should. i got to ask you the question, are you a secret agent Christian? You know what a secret agent is, right? A secret agent goes to other countries and they're actually a spy. They, they try to pretend like they're friends of that country or, or maybe a mob or a gang or some company or something. They go undercover. They don't want anybody to actually know what they're really like. And so they're, they're there to kind of spy out the place and, and to get some information. And, and, then, and then they tell their boss or the CIA or the FBI or whatever. Right. We all know of secret agents, don't we? But sadly, there's secret agents in churches. Christians that, that, that might profess to be a Christian in the church, but Monday through Saturday, they're the secret agent Christian, and all the unsaved people around you don't actually know you're a Christian. So if you are one of those kind of people, you need to repent and resolve to be more sincere. Take off the mask. Be what God has called you to be. We need to be careful in assuming that because there's no persecution right now and there's no conversion right now, the fault must lie with us. That's not necessarily the case. 
the growing period might actually be coming, just like there's a growing period for your vegetables or your, the fruit on your fruit tree. Those things take some time. My friend, the storm might be coming. As you continue to live right, the storm might be coming. It might be very soon, or there might be a conversion in that person's life as well. The fruit might come as well. So what are the blessings and promises of the persecuted? There are some. There are some wonderful things that come to, to you if you are actually persecuted for the right cause, which, is, of course, is righteousness and Christ. Verse 11 says, Blessed or fortunate or happy are you when, when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then notice what Jesus says. He says, rejoice and be glad. Huh. That's a shocking piece of counsel when you take it within its context, isn't it? We're talking about persecution here, right? Did, did Jesus forget what he was talking about? No, of course not. When he says rejoice and be glad, he's talking about the persecution. That's shocking, isn't it? What can possibly justify the command here to be glad when we're hated, we're mocked, we're tortured, and we're killed? And by the way, make no mistake about it here, Jesus does have death in mind when he's talking about persecution. This is what they did to the prophets, and this is what they did to the apostles. They killed them except for the Apostle John, but they tried to kill him, and they certainly made his life miserable. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 9 here, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, why, why is there this shocking counsel from Jesus Christ here? What can justify such counsel to people who are actually in, in real pain? My friend, may I remind you that Jesus has seen and Jesus knows about a reality that most people have never tasted and most people have never glimpsed. Jesus is not some ivory tower theologian who's never experienced what he's talking about and who doesn't know what he's talking about he knows so may i remind you of who is speaking here jesus christ is speaking here and he is the lord who says this to us and to his disciples by the way most of his disciples were gonna, they were going to be martyred when he said that and he knew that and he told them as they were sitting there rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad when? When you are persecuted, he told them. How can he say this? You say, man, that sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? Some people think it is. Well, he can say it because he knows beyond any shadow of doubt that there is a reward in heaven, and it, it's going to more than compensate for whatever happens on this earth. That's how Jesus can say this. 
I believe the blessings of the kingdom are threefold, by the way. It's a threefold or three points I want to point out to you here, okay? There, it, it's present, it's millennial, and it's eternal. The blessings and promises are, first of all, present. We are promised blessings here and now. Do you understand that, my friends? Some, some, some blessings are in the future, okay? That's true. Many of them, in fact, are in the future. But if you're a Christian, you have blessings here and now. So, in fact, some of these ones in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, you are blessed now. Now, we, we, could, we could talk for, for a long time, for hours and hours about these. We're not going to do that. But you need to meditate on these things. Think of God's promises. There's hundreds of them. All these wonderful blessings we see in the Bible that come to believers here and now in your present life. But it's it's even better. It's also coming in a future time. We can look forward to the blessings of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ that will take place after the tribulation. The next thing that's going to happen in prophecy is a seven-year tribulation where God's going to bring His judgment on this world. But when that's over, Jesus says, I'm coming again. He's going to make all things right. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. There will be a thousand years of peace on this earth. So when Christ establishes His thousand-year reign on this earth, the Bible says you and I will be co-rulers, that is, all Christians will reign with Jesus Christ on this renewed earth. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom are, are, were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's a literal time period, folks. And Jesus will be here. And you will be a ruler during that time period. If the first seven Beatitudes are in your life. But finally, there's a reward, and it's the eternal kingdom. This is going to be the greatest blessing ever. We will live forever in our Lord's kingdom We will enjoy His presence. We will be without sin. There will be no longer any death, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain. All of the former things will have been passed away. You will have a new body, a glorified body that is is pure and perfect, that can enjoy God's presence and be able to, to be there with Him and listen to Him speak. Enjoy all the other wonderful blessings of heaven and my friend I can I can honestly say it doesn't get any better than that So how should a believer respond to persecution Look at verse 12 How should a believer respond to persecution Jesus says in verse 12 rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you 
the believer's response to persecution should not be to retreat and hide. Can you turn that off, Joe? Sometimes we just want to retreat and hide when hard times come into our life and affliction comes our way. But to escape from the world is actually to escape our responsibility. Jesus didn't say, try to take yourself out of the world. No, Jesus said, you are to be in the world, just don't be of the world. And so because we belong to Christ, that means we no longer belong to the world. He sent us into the world. We're to serve just as He Himself came into the world to serve. You are His ambassador, He said. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you're persecuted? Well, hopefully you're rejoicing and you're being glad. By the way, that's not an option. (laughs) Jesus commands us to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. The words there, be glad, means we're to exult, we're to rejoice greatly, we're to be overjoyed when we suffer persecution. The literal meaning is to skip and jump with happy excitement. Kind of like Dorothy on, in The Wizard of Oz as she's going down the yellow brick road on the way to, to the city to meet the Wizard of Oz. She's jumping and skipping and singing with the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man. You know that story, right? I hope you do. She's skipping and jumping, having grand old time until the witch comes along. But that's the idea. You skip and jump, but you're, you're excited. Jesus uses the imperative here, by the way. It just means it's, a, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. They are commands here. Yes, you heard me correctly. Jesus says, be glad when you suffer. Rejoice when you suffer. We're commanded to rejoice and be glad. And if we're not glad, then we're not trusting God and we're, not, and, and, and we're actually being disobedient. <laughs> By the way, Jesus gives us two reasons for being glad. Two reasons for rejoicing here when we're persecuted for Christ's sake. First of all, look what Jesus says. He says, number one, the first reason you can be glad and rejoice is because you have a reward in heaven. Second of all, we are to rejoice because the world persecuted the prophets and the apostles before us in the same way that you and I are being persecuted. In other words, let me put it this way, okay? Here's my own words. Uh, I'm in good company. You're in good company if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the more your faith is tested through suffering, the greater your reward will be in heaven. And this is, you say, is that actually in the Bible? Does does persecution actually get me more reward in heaven? Yes. For example, look at Matthew 19, verse 29 here. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus mentions hundredfold there. The idea is there's, there's varying degrees of reward. Jesus, well, this isn't Jesus speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but you get the idea here. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 4. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. What is he saying here? He's saying that affliction is actually preparing you and me. It's bringing about something in our life. What is it bringing about? What is it preparing? An eternal weight of glory. In other words, your reward. Rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake and for Christ's sake. Why? Because that very suffering is going to bring us to a point where we get to receive a reward that is commensurate to the suffering we've received. It is an appropriate compensation, if you will. So the greater the suffering your faith actually endures, the greater the reward you get in heaven. What is that? I don't know. Okay, You, you just meditate on that. I've had fun thinking about it. Uh, you know, do, do, I get more, do I get more gold on my mansion than the other guy? I don't know. Do I get more diamonds on the walls of my house that Jesus is making? I don't know. Okay, Do, do I get more trees? to eat from in heaven do i get more horses i I don't know what that is okay do i get to spend more time talking to jesus who knows all right but the fact is jesus says you get more rewards you you just have fun thinking about that whatever you like that's probably what it's going to be all right um i'll just leave it at that there now there's some implications that comes with this text all right so you say well okay implications well what are the implications well One of the clear implications of this text is that we're going to actually, we're to keep our hearts in heaven. Let me put it that way. We're to keep our hearts in heaven. That's the implication from Jesus' words. Jesus wills for his disciples here. He desires, he has a desire. So Jesus wills for his, his disciples to desire this reward of heaven more than you and I actually desire Uh, whatever we can get on this earth. Jesus wills for us to have our treasure in heaven and not on the earth. Again, that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. So, contrary to what some people think, Jesus is not against treasure. Did, Did you hear me? Jesus is not against treasure. He's just telling you to be wise and where you store your treasure. Jesus says you're foolish if you try to store it on earth, but if you're trying to store your treasure in heaven, then you're being wise. So Jesus wills for your heart to be so set on heaven that to actually for us to actually leave this earth is a good thing. It's, it's something worth rejoicing in. Jesus wills for us to have our hearts primarily in heaven, our hopes primarily in heaven, our longings primarily in heaven, our joy primarily in heaven. In fact, you see that in Colossians 3.2, set your affection on things above, not on the earth. So there's no other way that you can rejoice and be glad at the loss of your earthly joys, is there? I can't think of one. I mean, it, for example, if, you know, if the Muslims came and burned your house down and and maybe even killed some of your family how are you going to rejoice and be glad about that 
It's pretty hard to unless your heart and your affections are set on another world. How will we rejoice and be glad? Our heart has to be in heaven. That's the only thing I can think of. If we don't love heaven more than we love our bodies or the things, our possessions in our family or our job or whatever, then you're not going to be able to rejoice and be glad. So what shall we do then? You say, I mean, that, that's kind of hard. How, how are we going to do that? How am I going to love heaven that much that if a Muslim or a group of Muslims was to come and to kill me, how am I going to rejoice and be glad? Well, how am I going to love heaven that much? Well, you need to understand just how precious heaven is. So let me try to help you out a little here. Why is heaven precious? Well, John MacArthur said it this way. He said, in reality, everything that is truly precious to us as Christians is in heaven. It's so true. Everything that is truly precious to us is in heaven. So let's think of some things in heaven, okay? Number one, God the Father and our Savior is in heaven. That's the place we need to start. Is there anybody whom you want to see and know more than God the Father and Jesus Christ? I hope the answer is no. I hope those are the ones that you want to see and talk to and know the most. It can't get any better than that. Number two, many brothers and sisters in Christ are there as well. Some of you have lost loved ones, haven't you? You've lost friends. In reality, if they're Christians and you're a Christian, you actually haven't lost them. You understand that? You, you still have them. You're just temporarily separated from them. Hebrews 12, verse 23 says that in turning to God, we have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So our departed loved ones who've, who've left this earth, they were Christians, they died in the faith, guess what? They're in heaven too. And one day, if you're a Christian, you're going to be reunited with them. And by the way, that includes every Old Testament saint, every New Testament believer who has ever died in Christ. They're also in heaven. So you get to see them as well. You, you just think of your favorite Bible character. Whoever that favorite Bible character is, you know, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be cool to, to go and, and see and talk to that person? I know some of you ladies and, and some of us men, you know, the, the first time I see Eve in heaven, I'm going to ask her, what in the world were you thinking? Well, I'm sure some of you ladies will talk to Adam as well, won't you? What were you thinking, huh? He's just as much to blame, okay, guys? All right, so our brothers and sisters will be in heaven. But we, we also, the Bible says, our names are recorded in heaven. Your name, if you're a Christian, there's, there's a book. The book of life is in heaven, the Bible says. And if you're a Christian, your name is there. Now, I, I don't, if you're a Chinese person, I don't know if God wrote it in Chinese. I don't know. Maybe he has some special heavenly language. It, it, it's probably not English. You know, English people are kind of proud about the English language. Probably not English. 
I don't know, all right? Who knows? But the Bible says your name is there. God knows it. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Christ actually told his disciples who are, who are there casting out demons, he said, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice, rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. That's kind of a cool thought. Our names are written in heaven. And Christ assures us that we have a title deed, if you will, to a, a piece of property in heaven. Read John chapter 14. Jesus says he's preparing a room or a mansion in heaven. The creator of the universe is making a place for you to reside if you're a believer. I mean, just think what he's already made. I mean, think what your room's going to be like. And there's a title deed in heaven. And nobody can take that from you. You know, God's, God's never going to do what, what the New Zealand government does to, to some people. You know, when they, they want to build the motorway through their property, you know, they, they come along and they pay them off and kick them out of their house and their land. We're putting the motorway through here, okay? Here's, here's some money for you. Bye. No, God's not going to do that to you in heaven. God doesn't build motorways in heaven. You got a title deed. Jesus builds the house. It's there for all eternity. And he's never going to kick you out. That's our inheritance. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 says that we are begotten in Christ to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Number four, what's heaven? Well, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, what I'm saying, my friends, is heaven is where you actually belong. You might be a citizen of New Zealand or another country, but if you're a Christian, your real citizenship belongs somewhere else other than that country. We're just strangers and exiles on the earth, the Bible says. Our goals, therefore, should not include you know, accumulating all the wealth and possessions that I can get or all the, the, the uh, you know, university degrees that I can get or all the accolades that I can get or you know, you know, I, all the, uh, the driver's licenses that I can get, or whatever the, you think looks good and feels good, God's not impressed by that. Our goals should not include those sort of things. Our real wealth, our eternal reward is in heaven. Matthew 6, Jesus says there that your only treasure is what you actually possess throughout eternity. Somebody jokingly said that you never see a hearse pulling a trailer. You guys know what a hearse is, right? A hearse is the thing you put, you, you put the casket in, you know, the person dies, they, and then they go off to the cemetery. They, they don't pull trailers to the cemetery. Because you die, everybody dies, they can't take that stuff with them. And so the only treasure, Jesus says, that's worth possessing is the one you get to keep for all eternity. So everything that we should love is what is of everlasting value. Here's what one commentator said, I quote, it's on the screen, so self-indulgence and materialism in the church has a particularly destructive spiritual bent. It undermines everything the church should stand for. It tears Christians away from their heavenly moorings and it makes them worldly. The term worldliness 
almost sounds outdated, doesn't it? Many people think it sounds petty, legalistic, and unnecessarily old-fashioned. Our grandparents heard sermons against the sin of worldliness. We think we're too sophisticated to concern ourselves with such trivial matters, but the real problem is that we are not sufficiently concerned with heavenly values. So we don't appreciate how wickedly sinful it is to hold on to earthly ones. And that is the essence of worldliness. It involves love for earthly things, esteem for earthly values, and preoccupation with earthly cares. Scripturally, scripture plainly labels it sin and sin of the worst stripe. It is a spiritual form of adultery that sets one outside God himself. In fact, here's what God said in James 4.4. 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. End quote. So have you ever heard somebody say, well, that person is so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, somebody should ask whether having our heart in heaven will actually make us useless on earth. The answer is actually given by Jesus in the very next paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 through 15, there he said, People who have their hearts in heaven are the salt of the earth, and they are the light of the world. So my friend, we can, we can say according to what Jesus really knows, that there is no such thing as a person who is so heavenly minded, they are no, of no earthly good. That person does not exist. So if heaven's so good, and I need to keep my heart there, then my next question for you is this, how can I keep my heart in heaven? How can you keep your heart in heaven? Let me give you just some practical things to take away with here, okay? First of all, here's what Jesus says, make it a regular practice of your life to consider the prophets and the apostles who were persecuted and killed for the cause of Christ and for righteousness. That's what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what do you need to do, my friends? You need to go to these great men and women of old. You need to get inside their hearts, get inside their heads, get inside their shoes, so to speak. Go to prison with them. Lay on the rack with them. Tie yourself to the stake with them. Learn how to love heaven with them. All right, let me just talk about some of these martyrs quickly. We all know the Apostle James, first martyr, condemned by a false accuser. He, the Bible, or not the Bible, but history tells us he showed such joy and courage that the accuser actually trusted in Christ. And in 44 AD, he was led to the chopping block and was beheaded. Philip was arrested for preaching the gospel, beaten unmercifully, thrown in prison, and the next day nailed to a cross. Matthew was beheaded by an axe. Mark was mobbed by the people in the city of Alexandria, thrown into prison. The next day, uh, sorry, he was, uh, he, was, he was dragged through the streets, sorry, dragged through the streets, apparently by a horse, 
until he was nearly mutilated, was burned alive as a piece of rubbish. Matthias was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Apostle Peter was in prison for nine months in Rome, was scourged, was crucified upside down. History tells us he chose that posture because he believed that he was not worthy to die as Jesus did. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs, and then he was cut to pieces by a sword. Thomas preached in India where he was finally arrested and he was thrust through with a spear. Luke was said to have been crucified. Simon was crucified. Andrew was threatened with crucifixion in Greece. Fearlessly continued to preach about Christ. Was sentenced to crucifixion with cords. They would sometimes tie you to the cross so it would take even longer for you to die. When Andrew saw the cross, he said this, quote, He neither changed countenance nor color, neither did his blood shrink, neither did he fail in his speech. His body fainted not, his understanding did not fail him, but out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth did speak as follows. Here's what he said, I quote, O cross, most welcome and oft looked for, with a willing mind, joyful and desirously, I come to you, being the scholar of him who did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and have longed to embrace you. Andrew, Andrew hung upon the cross for three whole days, suffering horrible pain, but continued to tell the people around him about Jesus Christ until he breathed his last breath. We all know about the Apostle Paul. You can read about him. He suffered all, all kinds of things. Eventually, he died in Rome after he was beheaded. So we need to, Jesus says, look to the prophets, the people of old who died a martyr's death. Number two, read the testimonies of those who have given their all for Christ. Biographies and autobiographies are some of the, the most, one of the most profitable things that you and I can do. Recently, just uh, several, uh, just about a couple months ago, I finished reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a hard book to get through. The language is old, but it's 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 one of those things where uh, I struggled through, but God blessed through the midst of that. There was a letter that, in, in, as I was reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I read about John Hooper. Three weeks before he was burned at the stake in England in 1555, here's what he said. Listen, you must now turn all your thoughts. By the way, I need to tell you, he's, he's actually writing to his children, his family. He says, you must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see. Mark the felicity that follows the peril. Beware of beholding too much the felicity or misery of this world. For the consideration and too earnest love or fear of either of them draws from God. End quote. Here's a man who understood about having his heart set in heaven, not on earth. Some of you have heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer died for his faith in Germany. He was a man who stood up to Hitler. He did not like what was going on in Germany. And he said, uh, in fact, that he, when he left his prison room on the way to the gallows in 1945, he said to, to a man 
Here's what he said. To the end. This is the end, he said. For me, the beginning of life. Ten years later, the camp doctor wrote this. Here was the camp doctor who saw these, these people persecuted and dying for their faith. He said of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. End quote. So my friend, here's what Jesus says. It's simply this. He says, look to the prophets. Look to the apostles. Look to the martyrs. Look to those who have gone on before you. The cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 talks about. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. Lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Make your heart in heaven. Have a heavenly mindset, heart set in heaven. And so whatever you must do to get your heart in heaven and off the world, do it. Do it. May God give us a heart set in heaven. Let's pray. Peacemakers will not always have peace in this world. Was Jesus always a peacemaker in that way? No, of course not. Jesus makes it quite clear. In fact, we're going to look, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the next beatitude. Look at verse 10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So my friend, you can be a peacemaker and at the same time receive persecution. Do you get it? And in fact, they often go together. They often go together. In Christ, we have forsaken the false peace of the world and consequently we're often not having peace in this world because we're bringing truth to bear on people's sin. But as God's children, we may always have peace in this world even though our circumstances may not be peaceful and this world may not be be at peace. This is called the peace of God. There's the good news. You may not have peace in this world, but you can still be at peace with God. Your heart can be quiet at rest world can't give you that. The world tries to take it away, my friend. Beware. The devil's going to try to take that peace away. The world's going to attack. Your own indwelling sin's going to do everything it can to attack you so that you're not at peace, so that you have a noisy soul. My friend, the solution is God. The solution is deal with the sin. Christ has dealt with the sin. The issue is, do you believe that? Let's pray.